did my mind after uh, Kip said he couldn't come was uh, my friend Buren. And uh, I know I can call him anytime, and he'll come running. And I give give him a call, and uh, Buren come running. And I've been able to spend a weekend with him and his wife. And I could sit up here for an hour and tell you what I think of the man. I think he's a wonderful man, and uh, I think he likes his wife. They've been married almost 48 years. And uh, you like her a little bit, don't you, Buren? <laughs> Hell, I can't put all my marriages together and make that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've had enough of this crap. I'd like to welcome you here. Hi, everybody. I'm Buren. I'm alcoholic. Let's see, what is, where's these notes y'all ought to read? Oh, okay. <laughs> there, your name is somebody. This is planned, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to God's grace, 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, great sponsorship. I've been sober since March 6, 1982. Is there any more announcements back there? Any more things to read? <laughs> my sponsor said to ask that when they read a lot. You know. Now I'm on my time. See? I'd have to add to that list that I just read about thanks for my sobriety is my home group, which is the 21 group of St. Joseph Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, that gave me a place to live. And to grow. And also my wife and my family, without their support, I doubt if I'd be here today. So I want my wife to stand up there. Come on, Peg, stand up. Don't be shy. <laughs> She's got 24 years of Alanon. You know, I just celebrated my 24th birthday three weeks ago, and now we've uh, had, she's had 24 years of drunkenness and 24 years of sobriety. 48 years we'll be married on June the 14th of this year. That ought to be a record for an alcoholic. Today, hopefully, I'm a great alcoholic, you know. I didn't get fired for my job. I didn't lose my family. Yep, you know. And you know, it. Uh, every time I come to these uh, the countdowns and see the people within one to a week or two or two or three months, you know, it just hits my heart and brings me back to memory. And I want all of you tonight that stood up out there for them. We know how you feel. We've been in that same seat that you have. Well, a lot of you are probably saying, where in the world are you from? <laughs> With this accent. You know, I'm not from Kentucky. I was born the bottom of Blue Ridge Mountain of Virginia. Down in God's country, you know. Raised on a little small farm down there, back there, 
Not much going on in the mountains. You just play a little kickball, work in the cornfields and the hay fields, and build swimming ponds and creeks, and sit around on the rocks and smoke corn silks, rabbit tobacco, and grapevines. As you see, drugs are no, not a part of my story. We swung on hemp rope and didn't even know what it was. <laughs> But today I'm having a good life. Me and my wife both retired, and we enjoy traveling. We've been on the uh, Alaskan cruise on the love boat. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, we're both drawing Social Security and both getting retirement. I worked at the university for 33 years, University of Kentucky, and retired there six years ago. Talking about Social Security, so it reminds me of a joke. <laughs> One time, this fellow, he was going out to Social Security office to uh, sign up for Social Security, and he got out there, and he started filling all his paperwork out, you know, and that lady said, well, sir, let me see your birth certificate. He started, must have forgot it. He said, well, I'll tell you, you, we can't do nothing until you show your birth certificate, show that you're old enough. And he said, no. He started pulling his shirt off, and he said, Showed all these gray hairs on his chest. He said, what about all these gray hairs? She shook her head and said, well, you look old enough. Tell you what, I'll go ahead and fill all the paperwork out. But you make sure you bring that birth certificate back out here to, so we can complete it. He said, okay. He goes home and he goes through the kitchen. His wife is in there and he said, honey, you'd never believe what happened to me a while ago. He said, what? Well, I went out there to sign up for Social Security, and I left my birth certificate and, and said I took my shirt off and showed all these gray hairs to prove I was old enough. She said, what, says you, damn fool, why don't you drop your drawers and get full disability? <laughs> God, I love to hear drunks laugh. I heard a speak in Louisville back in 85. He said, God, give us strength to laugh again. But don't ever let us forget we've all cried, you know. And, uh, like I say, I was born back out in the mountains. Born from 11 for home. My father had to quit working. He was 18 with heart trouble. And uh, we ran a little grocery store and raised on a farm. And had two older brothers. And... Uh, my, uh, you know, you hear people talking about the homes, you know, uh, I can look back at my mother and father. Back then in the old days, they never told you every day they loved you. It was understood back then days. You knew they loved you, you know, and, uh, and back in the mountains, I'm not a religious person because we didn't go to church. The only time we went is when a tent meeting would come through the mountains. And Mother would lug us down there in this hell-fine damnation. And all I heard was a fearful God. He's going to get you. So I feared God all my life till I got to Alcoholics Anonymous to find a loving God 
and a God of my understanding. And without that, I don't think I'd ever made it. My father passed away when I was 17, and um, I had started drinking a little. Before that, you know, we went fishing with him some, and a couple times he would talk to me about, I thought I smelled beer on you last night, and uh, nothing drastic, you know. We would, didn't have much money back then. I worked at a bowling alley setting up those duck pens and uh, made about $2 a day. And it didn't, of course, beer didn't cost much then, but... Uh, we don't want a lot of Boy Scout trips and so forth. And uh, But after he passed away, it was just me and mother there. My two brothers was in service then. I wanted to quit school and join service myself, but she didn't want me to. Please finish high school. That's all her wish was, for me to finish. It took me six years to get out of high school, but I finally, <laughs> finally did it. But this time I had started drinking more. There's a bunch of us, we ran into gangs, and we run across the sawmill there in the mountains and uh, broke in the shed, and uh, we found that magic, white lightning. So I had Kilroy was bringing me a half a gallon every Friday night and putting it in a boxwood so my mother wouldn't see it. White lightning for five dollars for half a gallon. I would paint it out into four paints. I'd sell two paints for two dollars a piece. <clears throat> then I'd have two paints for a dollar. I would go to Square Dance every Friday night and Square Dance Saturday night. <laughs> Had a thirty Ford for my driving car, A model we called them back then. And Nineteen years old and never had a date. I was too shy. People can't believe it today how shy I was back then. <laughs> I couldn't ask the woman for a date. So my first date was a blind date. I was being sport for this uh, cracker. One. He said, this girl won't go if I don't go. And, uh, first blind date didn't work too well. I got drunk, too drunk. Three weeks later, I had another blind date. And this is the lady that I've been married to be 48 years and years before I <laughs> We uh, we dated about a year and a half, and then she talked me into getting married. <laughs> she had it all figured out. We'd slip off to Chesterfield, South Carolina, get married, come back, and announce it after about nine months. I was getting pretty wild. I said, I'll try anything once. <laughs> so we'd go down there, and we'd change clothes in the service station, to buy a hamburger for breakfast, paid $11 for preaching, and we got married at 10 o'clock in the morning. Went on down to Myrtle Beach. Men Cracker was in the Bowery at 12 o'clock. And uh, our wives were up on the beach. We came on back home and we dated. Then she talked me into announcing it. From June the 14th to the 4th of July. She said, honey, it'll be your last night out with the boys. Why don't you go out with the boys tonight? And, and I'll stay home and talk to mother and fix us a room and we can live here. I said, Okay. Two o'clock in the morning, I was coming back from North Carolina, and three carloads of state police pulled me around. And back then, they didn't call it DUI. It was drunk driving. <laughs> I suppose it got all them fancy names to it. It's 1958. You know? 
My mother heard it on the radio, local radio station up there. 350 people, you know, all over the mountain heard it. Here in Plaster. Talk for drunk driving. <laughs> so we was off to a rocky start. I lost my license for a year and stayed with my mother-in-law. We lived there for six months and we got his little apartment. And then I, uh, Actually, I finished high school, but I never went to college. I took a correspondence course in architectural drafting. And I finished that while I wasn't, couldn't drive a car, and I had more time to do that. And I got a job for Lesco Homes down in Martinsville, Virginia. And there was a draftsman. It was a good training school. Some people from Lexington, Kentucky, come down there with home builders. And they must have liked me. I, all the draftsmen were bartenders at a big dinner they had, and I must have made some good drinks because they said, Buren, how would you like to live in Kentucky? And I said, yeah, well, they said, we'll fly you up and let you see it. So we flew into Lexington. I did. Peg stayed home the first trip. They took me out on the town, and I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Those bright lights and that rock and roll music and all those whiskey bottles in front of those mirrors. And I went home and I said, honey, let's sell out and go to Kentucky. <laughs> went on back and we moved here in March of uh, 1964. Built a house for a couple of years and we uh, had to quit that because one of my Chuck's partners Wife sued for divorce, tied up the company, and I had to look for a job. And that's when I went to work at University of Kentucky in 1966 and, uh, as a head draftsman there. We didn't have no children then, and we started to raise a family and couldn't hit. And uh, I began to think it was the water up here in Kentucky. And, uh, <laughs> then almost after nine years, we hit. Had a son born in 1967. He'll be 39 April 24th. Three years later, we had a daughter. Terry would be 35 and 36. My God, I'm getting old. 36 <laughs> in April. And a beautiful family, healthy family. We had the world by the tail. You know, after we moved up here, I, some way or another, I figured out Friday night would be my night out. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I figured this, but I loved the bars so much. When I would get off work at university, I'd have that blue blazer on, that white turtleneck, and I'd just go bar hopping. I wasn't going out looking for women to raise hell or anything. I would just love the music and love to drink. wasn't bothering nobody. I just had a good time everywhere I went. Because you know. I used it for a crutch. I was so shy. But when I drank, I wasn't that shy, you know. Come on back in about 2 o'clock in the morning, nothing, nothing worrying, hurting nobody. Time went on, the kids grew up. After it was about 8 or 9 years old, they got involved in sports. Up at Tate's Creek School, we're up on the hill, and that's where we, uh, they went to school the whole 12 years at that school. But they got active in sports, and so Peg and I got active in the booster club to help raise money to keep the sports going, you know. And up on the hill there is when I began to start drinking more. That's where all the coaches drank and had a good time. We started going on some all-star trips to Tennessee, and all it was was a three-day drunk. 
You didn't stay keep your kids. They, the only time you saw them was when it was out on the field. They, they lived with the people that they played against, you know. But all it was was a three-day drunk. And this time my years went on a little bit longer, I began to feel bad. And uh, Peg says, well, why don't you go to a doctor? You know, as drunks, we don't like doctors. And uh, So I went to the doctor, and I had a good physical, and the reports come back. I had started developing a toxic hepatitis, which is a liver disease. I said, Buren, how much are you drinking? About two beers a night. <laughs> Occasional highball. See, Peg never would let me bring whiskey in the house, some reason or another, not because it made me mean, but because it made me stubborn, you know. When we would go to parties, I would get stubborn. And they would always be the first one there and the last one to leave. I'm sort of that way in the alcoholics' number. I like to be the first one there and the last one to leave. That's one part that never changed about me, you know. But, you know, doctor said, Buren, it's going to kill you. I said, uh, he said, tell you what, let's try it for 30 days. I said, hey, no problem. I built up a lot of sick leave at UK, so I went on back to work, and by 10 o'clock in the morning, I would start shaking, and uh, I'd tell my boss, I said, uh, I believe I'll go on home. He said, okay. And, and that went on a week or two, and then when 30 days came up, I started looking good, I felt good, and I went back to my doctor. And my liver had gone down. And he said, well, you, you look in good shape. But he said, you better watch it. In two weeks, I was back drinking more, more and more. You know, I, I heard a speak one time, said, you don't know, I don't know when I crossed that invisible line you hear around here. But I'm pretty sure I was drinking when I crossed it. <laughs> And I can identify that, you know. Because, like it's up in the hill, I got in Eddie was getting up in the, more football, and I would stop at the work, stopping by and buy me a half a pint. Started out, you know, the, the beer wasn't getting the job done, and I started drinking whiskey. And when they was practicing, I never missed a practice. I never missed a ball game. We was always there. I'd take pictures of them on the day. These Super 8 cameras, you know, the games and the scrimmages. People was even barring them to scout different teams, you know. I bought all the Gatorade for the boys on the team, you know. And, and then I would wear that little thing around my beer Budweiser can that says Coke. <laughs> some of them little boys would come up and say, my dad's got some of them. <laughs> But I was using that Gatorade later for vodka, too. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, we went on another trip, this time to Florida. Got way down there in Melbourne, Florida. Pegging it to go on this trip with just me. Went down there, and uh, we went to Disney World. Got to see Disney World, but I forgot to put film in the camera. <laughs> I thought I had four good hours of Disney World. Didn't have anything. <laughs> a couple of years later, we came on back, and we, we always went to Myrtle Beach every year, and we came back up in the mountains, and my mother had been to the doctor. 
and they found out she had cancer real bad. This was in 1977, July of 77. But Thanksgiving, I went down to see her, flew down, and stayed with my cousin. By this time, I was drinking a lot, over pints of vodka a day and beer just to keep it on my breath. Because, uh, and I stayed with Shirley. And I never will forget this one morning I was going over to the hospital. I stopped at a restaurant where everybody was in there eating eggs all of the Budweiser at 8 o'clock in the morning. And I never will forget that sound when I was trying to pour that bud in that glass when it got the rattling like that. And, you know, I looked around to see if anybody see me, and then you would just force it and pour it in it. That was the first time that I noticed something wasn't right, really, you know. Came on back home, and then uh, my mother wanted to come home for her bed her last Christmas. It was her wish. And so we went back at Christmas, and uh, Peg stayed with her mother that week. And I said, I'll go up there and just stay mother, just be me and mother. I stopped and got six pints of vodka to take with me and hide. I hid them outside in the boxwood. And every time my mother would get up, go into the bathroom to take cocaine and morphine for pain when she would urinate, I was going out in the yard behind the boxwood and drinking my vodka. And then in February of 78, she passed away. And it's something I'm not proud of. I had to drink to go to my mother's funeral to keep from shaking. I never will forget when we left Shirley's to go out to the car. I pulled a bottle out from under the seat and turned it up. And Peg said, what are you doing? I said, honey, I have to, to keep from shaking. There was no more said about that. The funeral would come on back home. Getting time for another football trip. This time, Peg gets to go. She goes with the cheerleaders. I go with the team. I knew it would be 16 hours before I could have another drink. I drank me a pint of vodka before I got on the bus. Time we got to Orlando, Florida, we got off to get the kids some hamburgers, and I had my first alcoholic seizure. I just fell right on the sidewalk, knocked my shoulder out of place. They put me in the hospital, and later, the next day, we had to fly back. They wouldn't let them ride on a bus, so I missed my son's ball game. Got back here in a couple of months. I had another seizure in the living room with the kids. This time, that big red ambulance come to pick me up, took me to Central Baptist Hospital. I was laying in there with all them little heads looking down at me, and I heard one nurse say, I wonder what's wrong with that little fella. <laughs> then I heard this one nurse sound like a Marine sergeant. She says, a damn fool drunk. <laughs> I looked up and I said, I haven't had but two. You know? <laughs> so they thought I had a brain tumor. They started running all these tests on me. I had wires out of every hole I had. and uh, I was in there about three days, and here come Dr. Burkhardt in, and he came over to the bed, and he said, Buren, shaking his head. And I said, what's wrong, Doc? He said, you got toxic hepatitis again. My liver had swelled. 
at first I didn't know why one side swelled out. I didn't know what was going on. He said, Buren, I tell you, it's going to kill you. You only got one liver. And you know, it sort of got my attention. I go home, I get the medical books out, and I start reading. Sure enough, you don't have but one liver. (laughs) But you know, I kept reading down through there. And it's talking about cirrhosis of the liver. And there's symptoms, you know, where you would yaller and your eyeballs would yaller. And and I went in there and I looked in that bathroom and I wouldn't yaller. I said, it's not as bad as he says it is. (laughs) That's the disease, that denial. We don't have it, you know. You know, the longer you stay sober, the farther you can go back in your life and tell how alcoholic you drink, you know. You know, this is a family disease. We hurt everybody that we come in touch with. I can look back to those days when I'd come home and be downstairs drinking while the kids were watching that braided bunch, you know. <laughs> and Peg would call us up to supper, and, you know, I don't know why we try to start fights. And I can remember hitting that table, wanting attention, that self-centeredness, you know, everything's about us. And then plates would come three inches off of that and just scare those kids to death. And then I had tickets to Rupp Arena basketball games, and I would take them to the games. And I'd park way down Rose Street and get halfway up there, and I'd say, and I'd do this on purpose. I'd leave my car doors open. I said, could y'all sit here on the curb while I go back to my car? And all I was doing is going back to get another drink of vodka so I wouldn't go into shakes during the ball game. Anything could have happened to those children sitting there by themselves on that thing. Every time we would go up on the hill to ball games, we'd have to have two cars. I'd have to take mine. Because I had it stored everywhere, behind the hot water heater, behind the furnace, in my desk drawer, in my golf bag, under my chair, everywhere. Sometimes I hid it from my own self. (laughs) But every time we'd go up on the hill, then I wouldn't wear a coat gets cold, you can go back to your car to get your coat. I use the excuse I left my handkerchief to go get a handkerchief to get a drink. It just goes on and on and on and on. And then finally it caught up with me. I would get up in the mornings and then I would have to drink a half a pint to even shave. I just couldn't wait for Peg to go to work and the kids go to school. And sometimes I'd be halfway to work, and I said, did I put that bottle back? And I'd go back, turn around, go back, and it'd be sitting right in the middle of the bathroom. And then eventually I'd drink the half a pint of shave. Then at 11 o'clock, I would have to leave work, go down in the parking lot, lay down the floorboard, and drink a half a pint. Just to hold that pencil three more hours as a draftsman. I draw now on computer, you know, on AutoCAD, but then I drew by hand. I could always tell when I couldn't tune my radio I needed a drink. It's something I said I would never do is drink and go to work because Chuck that moved me to Kentucky, he died three years ago with 25 years of sobriety, you know. 
But he always told me, he said, Buren, when we work, we work hard, we play, we play hard, but we never mix it. And I lived by that rule, but it got to the point I had to, you know. So I got ashamed of myself, and I called my secretary, and I said, Joyce, I think I got the flu. See, I'd run out of liver pills. Doctor gave me liver pills, and I thought as long as you took your liver pills, it wouldn't hurt your liver if you drank. <laughs> so I was beginning to shake it, and I was ashamed to go back to my doctor to get some more liver pills. I said, tell you what, if I can just stay home long enough and get rid of these shakes, I'll go back to my doctor, get some living pills, and I'm all right. That was my plan. So I called Joyce, and I said, I think I got the flu. See, Peg had had the flu. She had the same symptoms I did, the diarrhea and throwing up all over the place, you know. So that's the reason we called it flu. And uh, I said, I think I'm going to have to stay out of work a week. <laughs> oh, why? I told her a week for the flu. But anyway, I'd get up at mornings, and by 10 o'clock, you could finally get a drink down. And it went on to the end of the week. And this was on March the 6th of 1982. Hopefully, I wish it was my last drink. It's a buddy of mine came down from Columbus, Ohio. I hadn't seen Scott in a long time. We went out to my old favorite hole, the Boom Boom Room. <laughs> I spoke in a jail in Georgetown several years ago, and I mentioned the Boom Boom Room. An old boy in the back says, that's cowboys now. <laughs> <laughs> but I came home that night about 2 in the morning. And I don't know where this came from. I went into my bathroom and I looked in that mirror. And I said, God, please help me quit. I told you at first I wasn't a religious person. I feared God all my life. And I don't know where that come from that night. I do now, but I didn't then. I got up Sunday morning. I didn't drink all day Sunday. I didn't drink all day Monday. Tuesday, I didn't drink all day. Went to sleep Tuesday night, and I woke up about middle of the night, and all at once there come a hog coming through my bedroom. <laughs> and then I looked out the window, and there was a white buffalo out there in the backyard. <laughs> so I wake my wife up, and I said, Honey, look at that buffalo out there in the backyard. <laughs> she said, Shut up, it ain't no buffalo out there. <laughs> So I go on back to sleep, and the next morning I get up, and I go downstairs to my favorite recliner, and that's when all hell broke loose. I went into full DTs. If you've never had the DTs yet, yet is still out there. It's something I never want to forget. It was just like a school in my basement. My secretary was a judge. They'd blow this whistle, and here come all those flying ants and light all over your head and body. And then you look down on the base floor, there's beagle puppies playing basketball all in my basement. <laughs> there was two squirrels making out in my bedroom. <laughs> I looked over to the fireplace, and here come a snake out of that fireplace. And he started crawling across the floor, and something told me what he was going to do. And when he got over, I put my foot on him. And you, it's so real, folks, you could feel it rolling under your foot. And he went up my britch leg and crawled up my butt. 
By this time, my daughter came home from school, and I wouldn't let her in the house. Something must have told me I may hurt her. See, you never know what you're going to do in DT. She calls Peg and says, Dad won't let me in the house. So Peg got worried, and she comes home. But this time, I was upstairs crawling under the bed looking for a gun. She didn't know what was wrong. She calls my doctor, and he said, it sounded like it's DT's. He came back up and said, do you want to go to the hospital? They had talked to a treatment center, the uh, psychiatrist, and they said, I said, yeah. It's the last I remember. Four days later, I woke, woke up in the nut house of St. Joseph Hospital, strapped down. That's what they have to do to you when you have DTs. I know today how lucky I am not to have a wet brain for the rest of my life because that's what DTs can destroy your brain cells if you're in them too long. After about six or seven days, I was up there. and I said, I bet my bookie's worried about me. So I called my book, and he said, where are you, Bjorn? I said, I've got a nervous condition. They treat me over here. I, you know, I started taking tips from people in the nut house on horses, and I was betting. <laughs> I, I found later I was in the right place, I'll tell you. While I was up there, my sponsor, which is my sponsor now, Jim L., came up there. He worked at a treatment center, and he was talking to me, and uh, he just celebrated 38 years last Sunday night. And uh, at that time, he had 14 years. He said, you know, I haven't had a drink in 14 years. And I said, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them had told me, you know, uh, they thought I was an alcoholic. And I said, by God, I can quit any time I want to. And uh, and they said, yeah, but I said, you don't understand, sir, I got willpower. He said, really? He said, take a dose of x lax and drive the here to Paducah without stopping. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it got my attention. You know. <laughs> so, after nine days in the nut house, they invited me to come down to another floor, which is a 21 group. They, they just started that in uh, 1981. Treatment. I'd never heard of treatment, never heard of alcoholics anonymous. I talked to my wife, I talked to my boss, and they both recommended maybe I should go. <laughs> so, so I go through the process of going downstairs, go through the 21-day program. All I did was play a couple of weeks, you know, listen to everybody complaining, sound more like a marriage counselor's down there, people telling stuff on their loved ones. And, uh, and I was shy, I couldn't talk without whiskey, you know. <coughs> And, you know, they come then and started taking me to an outside meeting. I go to my first meeting, and it's the first time I ever said I was an alcoholic. When they, Back in the old days, no discussion groups was volunteer. You went around the rooms where everybody could say the name, what they're all. And he got to me, and I said, I'm beer, and I'm alcoholic. But, you know, I'd have said I was SOB if that's what everybody else said. <laughs> I had that wristband. I was just going around the room. A few days before I got out of there, something, we had these bitty committee meetings in our head, and they said, listen, Buren, you better start getting honest with these people. They're trying to help you. You know, your counsel is your first resentments in recovery. 
in treatment centers. You don't want them getting nosy. You want to find out what makes you tick, you know. But something told me they were trying to help me. So I got more relief in the last seven days than I did the first 14. Some reason or another, when I got out of there, I volunteered to come back to that hospital to pick up five guys every Monday night to take them to Clay's Mill Men's Group where they took me. I did that for two years. You know, that was the best therapy for me. I could see myself every Monday night when I picked up those guys, see their eyes clear up in those 21 days, you know. I'd tell them, boy, just keep coming back. It gets better. And it wasn't even better for me, you know. <laughs> I was coming around these rooms, you know, and y'all talked about God a lot. And I told you I didn't have no religion. I feared God all my life. And I would just flinch when y'all mentioned it. But you kept talking about a how power. At that time, uh, John Y., he had uh, around 17 years at that time. You know, he used a bedpost for high power for 17 years because it had a job to do. It held up that bed. But later on, he had heart surgery and found some extra arteries. He changed it to a loving God. (laughs) I've seen people use trees. They may cut that tree down. I've seen people use groups as a high power. That group may fold, you know. But one night, I don't know where this came from. I was sitting there having that committee meeting again, you know. <laughs> this was about seven or eight months. I was about to jump in off place, I guess. I still had it hit all over the house. I was going through the motions. I guess I wanted it, but was willing to try to help those guys. That was helping me. And it, it came to me, listen, Buren, you didn't get in here on your own. It had to be a power greater than you. It was a process. You know, I needed to go back to my doctor. I took off from work to get so I could get back. I go into DTs. I wake up in the nut house. I woke up in AA. And I didn't have a thing to do with it. It had to be a power greater than me. I said, okay, I'll try this. I'll choose a God of my understanding. Not nobody. It's mine. And it'll be a loving God. I was 45 years old and never prayed a day in my life. But that morning I said, God, get me through this day without having a desire to have a drink. Also, God, remove this inferiority complex that I have had all my life. And with this, within months, this still blows my mind, I got relief. My hand started raising up to volunteer and for service work, you know. I became an alternate IGR of my home group. And then I became the regular IGR of my home group. And I recommend everybody get a home group and get active in it and get accountable. Everybody can't be an IGR. It's called how large the group is. If there's some kind of position you can fill to get active in. But when I got in to be the uh, IGR, I was going to regular, and this fellow was going out to federal prison. He'd been going at Tommy Head for five years, and he was ready to step down. And he came to meeting. So they asked, would anybody there volunteer their home group just to do it for one month, take speakers out to the federal prison? 
I don't know why, boy, my hand shot up. And I said, I'll do it. That was in January of 1984. Eighteen years later, I gave it up four years ago. Every day. You know, I recommend so much to get into corrections, to jails and prisons, and volunteer for any type of service work. But what I hope you keep is when you volunteer to be in anything, make your mind to do at least for a year. You've got to make a commitment. You know, I've heard people say, oh, I go out to the prison in two or three months. And, man, that's not what they thought it was. I don't know what they think it's going to be. Uh, Sometimes it's an ego thing. Oh, I'm going to prison, you know. See, you've got, somebody's got to be accountable. They can't go outside to go to a meeting. You have to be there. There again, I'm so thankful for my wife. When we used to have meetings out there on Sunday, she would start cooking dinner at 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon so I could get out there to the prison for the meeting, you know. Pat and Clint and I started going out there at first. Pat went with me six years. Clint went with me five, and we would alternate chairing. Then some several other fellows, Bill and <coughs> Sherry and Ruth, started going. And eventually uh, Pat and Clint and I I was what they call the outside representative. I was responsible for the group. Make sure you don't go out there and start. You can't get, you can't take in chewing gum. That's the biggest no-no in a prison is taking in gum. Because they stop up locks. And they're pretty expensive locks, you know. We started going out there as co-ed. Can you imagine a prison today, co-ed? Men and women walking around there holding hands. So in 1989, they took all the men out, and we had all women out there. We'd have around 150 women at the meetings. Then they got the bright idea to bring the men back. They had 1,600 women and brought 400 men back. (laughs) In nine months, they filled up all the local hospitals. They decided it was time to change it forever. No more men and women. So we had six years with the women there, and uh, 150 comes to meetings. You know, I never thought a discussion group would work with 150 of them. But it goes to show what we know, you know. Give it a try. They would always have a chairman. They would, people would raise their hand that wanted to share and talk, and they'd write down the, name, the, the names and they'd go around the room. It's just like it, meetings on the outside. All of us, see, I couldn't talk at first. I had that knot in my throat, and I couldn't talk. Same way in the prisons. It's everywhere like that. When someone left and go home, there's another one stepped up to ready to share. I never forget this lady that came to a meeting that night. First meeting she came to, she, she shared. She said she'd been to the doctor that day. And Dee said, the doctor told us, said, honey, you've got six months to do a 20-year sentence in. They found that she had AIDS. And the governor of California gave her a pardon. She goes home. And I would call D.D. every two weeks to see how she's doing. And after six months, she died, you know. She told a story to L.A. Uh, Christian Broadcast Station out there. <clears throat> after six months, her sister called me and said, D.D. died last night. And 
she sent me that tape, and I got to take it back out to prison so the inmates could see it. And it was just a blessing. And uh, Dee Dee and her husband was a Bonnie and Clyde of of the island down Thomas Island, around Blover, Muter, and places, you know. Her baby was born with AIDS, but eventually outgrew it. It changed over. A lot of women out there had AIDS. And then all the women left in 1994, and then the men arrived again. I mean, we had 2,000 men. We had 150 men in prison. I know today, three years or six years in prison is not a bottom for a lot of people. We had a boy that got out on Christmas Eve. He'd been there six years. And everyone would leave. I would get to, you get the area director. I would call the, I, just, I could tell who the GSR was. And I would call groups with the largest donations, which is a pretty well organization. And they'd always have uh, somebody in in corrections. Would they mind if this fellow called you when they get out? And none of them refused to accept the call to meet them at the bus station. And they always want me to get them sponsors. I said, I can't get you a sponsor. I can get you to a meeting. If you make the call, you go to the meeting. God will put that person in your life that you learn to trust to become your sponsor. And that's the way a lot of them got sponsors now. But as you know, it's the same difference on the outside. If you don't go to a lot of meetings... You know, eventually something's going to happen, you know. I've heard good stories and bad stories. And my last bad story has been in the last two years. Tammy had 11 years sober, clean and sober. She's paroled six years for bank robbery. She got down with her back. Her doctor prescribed Oxycontin to her. And this friend of Tammy said, Tammy, if you crush that and smoke it, you'll get quicker relief. She did, and within two weeks, she's back on heroin. She was using, she didn't tell her doctor. She was still giving the Oxycontin, and in Missouri, it's selling like gold. She was keeping the lights on by selling her Oxycontin and buying her drugs. She picks up a charge, and I was talking to her mother last week. She spent a year and a half in Leavenworth just waiting on a trial. And they sentenced her two months ago, and now she just ended up this week in Danburg, Connecticut. That way it's 26 hours for her mother won't be able to even go see her. She was hoping to get Texas. But after you get into prison, you've got a number, and that's all you are is a number for the rest of your life. Texas is the worst. We had a girl down there for 10 years. She gets out in six months, picks up a four felon in Texas, and that's automatically 50 years. That's how hard it is to go back. She's 38 years old. She'll die in prison. You know, we was talking about the, uh, the kids. Kids, a while ago, a lot of you got a lot of kids. You know, they grow up on you. You know, we, we don't know if we hurt them or... Yeah, I remember when I got out of treatment. I took an extra week off just to be with my children. I don't know why. But I caught myself at times trying to buy love to make up, you know, to make up for things wrong I've done, you know. 
found out you can't buy love. And I've tried to lay examples, you know, by staying sober and keeping active. Eddie was in the U.K. going to school, and uh, he started getting into trouble. Got on a drug charge one time, and then another time he got a DUI. And a lot of professors there who are work, they want to know, well, how's Eddie doing? And I'd say, well, he's doing pretty good. You know, I was ashamed and just worried me to death because I wanted him to do so good. I worked. I didn't have education, but, but working there, a lot of people thought I was a professor. And I figured if they weren't no smarter than that, I wouldn't ever tell them no difference. <laughs> But I knew how uh, education, how much it needed it. And uh, everything, when you start tearing up those papers at the end, dropping out with two weeks to go in those drop classes, and finally they released him from the university because he wasn't coming to know. As years went on, and one day he called me and said, Dad, I, better, I thought I'd better call and tell you that I got another DUI before you sit in the paper. By this time, you know, I finally learned to let go. I said, son, I don't care if your picture's on the front page. It's your life. See, I have to worry about my sobriety today. Without my sobriety, I can't. So you can love a person to death. And uh, In the last few years, he got, five years ago, he got two months of sobriety. One time he come back to Got in a bar fight and bruised his leg and his collarbone, his little finger, and he stayed back at the house for two months. And said, Dad, I think I've got an alcohol problem. <laughs> he said, now would be a good chance, I think, me to quit. I said, well, it's son, it's like I've told you before. I can't help you. But I've got a lot of friends at Kansas. I dug him numbers out, you know. and uh, said, I can help your son, but I can't help my son. But I dug him numbers out, and they called him. Boy, they'd come and got him, took them meetings, you know. And two months later, the crutches left, and that bartending job come open. He took it. That's been about five years ago. And a couple of years ago, he got threw out of his girlfriend, threw him out. Now, this one part that Peg don't like, you know, I sort of thought it was funny. This girl throws him out. You know, I've heard stories where somebody's spouse is throw them out. They'll either cut the clothes up, burn them up, or throw them out in the rain. She took them to the dry cleaners. <laughs> that way he's got to spend all that money to get them out, you know. <laughs> I thought it was great, you know. <laughs> Boy, he might not like that starch in his shorts. I don't know what it was. <laughs> but some miracles has happened in the last. This is today. He'll have twelve days. Last Monday, he almost died. He had one of them seizures I had. We go to the emergency room, you know, and he drank about a gallon of vodka that weekend. And you dehydrate when he's out there pouring that concrete. And he fell and busted his head open, his mouth. And 
certain Caesars, you bite your tongue and bite it off. You don't watch it. We brought him home because they said he may go in another, and sure enough, a couple hours later, he had another house. And that's the worst sight you've ever seen in your life. But they gave him plenty of Gatorade. And uh, he's back at work now, but I, like I said, I can't help him. But I've got a lot of friends, and, and he called Jimmy, and Jimmy's his sponsor now, and they're going to meetings. And he went to Jim, my sponsor's 38th birthday last Sunday night, and we got home, and about 12 o'clock he called me. He said, Dad, I need to talk. And I said, what's wrong, son? He said, well, I got news a while ago. A friend called me and says our other friend, Jimmy, was coming home and he was drinking and drugging and his wife threw him out of the house. He goes out into the driveway, gets a gun out of his dash, puts it in his mouth and blows his head off last Sunday night. His best friend. I said, son, that happens every night. It's just sometimes that it happens to people we know, you know. He said, you know, this is serious business, isn't it, Dad? I said, you better believe it is. Hopefully that's a wake-up call. You know, as long as I feel comfortable for the last few years, as long as he knows I love him and God knows I love him, that's all I can do, you know. It hurts for you family members. Maybe that's a miracle we've been looking for. I hope so. Uh, he's such a lovable person. He's just like his dad, you know. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I, I've had a, a great life. I've been a different person. I, I can't explain how this relief from just not only to have a drink, but to be able to laugh and have a good time without drinking, you know. Way back then, I went to the Dale Carnegie course to get rid of the shyness. <laughs> but, you know, we had it over the springs. We'd go in there and get six highballs. I went in there and won two awards. <laughs> <laughs> but I was the same old shy beer, and when I came, I got up the next morning, you know. But, uh, but you know, uh, I go back, you know, when I finally got this high power, I didn't have a sponsor or anything then, and that's when... Uh, I started a process where I could get a sponsor. I could ask this person, Jim, and Jim started taking me to places. That's where I, hopefully I got in the habit. See, I don't just do AA and Lexington. I get out of Dodge. I go to, I love it up in here in Covington, Cincinnati, and, and over in Newport and around. I just love it because I love the enthusiasm up in here. I can see lack of enthusiasm in Lexington today. It's not like it was when I came in. You know, I, can, I remember one year Clancy talked about pockets of enthusiasm. I wonder what in the world is he talking about. I know what it is now. There is pockets all over the state and places. There's more enthusiasm in places than there is the other. That's the reason, you know, Rule 62, I've only missed one out of 15 y'all have had. Y'all had it a week early one year on me. <laughs> I was in Myrtle Beach. <laughs> but I go, and people, and I come up in here, and they always come, they say, you just have a good time everywhere you go. Every time I see you, you're laughing. And, Folks, everywhere I go, I take me with me, you know. But working these steps, I know who I am today, you know. 
making amends to my family. That was where my biggest thing was my amends to my family and also at my job. I wasn't, I was such a happy, joyous drunk. I didn't do a lot of drastic stuff to hurt a lot of people. It was my family, myself, and it worked. And, you know, I've heard a lot of people, you know, I didn't do my full step with my sponsor. I did it with my doctor. He closed the door and told the nurse, no more calls for an hour. You know, I, I was so dumb. When I could read, but it's in the book, it said doctor, a priest. <laughs> I said, I'll tell you, that's one I lied to all my life. We go back and look in my records there in that day, that two beers. <laughs> Finally got up to three. <laughs> we don't tell no doctors no truth. We don't tell psychiatrists the truth. We don't tell no, we don't even tell ourselves the truth. <laughs> And it's been, but today, Peg and I, we uh, we enjoy travel as much as we can. I recommend all y'all keep y'all's job because we need the Social Security. It's going down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'll, I'll be 69 in May. And uh, God, when I was laying over in that nut house, I never thought I'd see 69 years old. And uh, it's just a beautiful life. And now, our daughter, she's 36. She has never caused us any problem. But you know, I've got enough sense to know it can start tomorrow. She's a nurse in the Norton Hospital in, in Louisville. She works down there. Neither one of them are married. If they're not ready, we're not ready. <laughs> I've seen a lot of grandbabies around Grandma's homes, you know. And uh, But one day, you know, I'm getting old. Uh, maybe if we ever have grandkids... They can come to nursing home and we can play checkers, you know. <laughs> it's always something that I think I've left out when I talk, but you know, uh, and they used to worry, but you know, I've got the rest of my life to get this thing right, you know, and it's just one day at a time. And but you new people, I just love you. It's you are the most important people here. We know how you feel in that seat because we've been in that seat. Go to some meetings. Go to one every day if you drank every day. Go to one every day. I am so fortunate to have a wife that she don't complain about me. I go to a meeting every night. You know, uh, it's not because I have to, because I want to. You can't keep it at home sitting watching Law and Order and all. you got a VCR, you know. <laughs> You give it away. And, you know, I get gratitude at every meeting I go to, like the token club. they got the treatment centers coming in. I see where I can go back to any day. Because I had a friend had 15 years and started nipping his vodka. And in two months, he wouldn't come back to meetings. He wouldn't let us come to him. They broke the door down. He was laying in the hallway with a fifth in his hand, dead. Bank of John at 42 years old. Went through treatment. His mother and father, his wife and kids done left and gone home. Stan and him was going to get him to take him to Akron. Broke the door down. He's laying in the hallway with a fifth in his hand. It is a killer. When you lose friends, when John Y. died, uh, this friend of mine, Jim, was John Y. was his sponsor, and he did his eulogy at his funeral. He goes out that night. And thought he could have a glass of wine 
after 11 years, a glass of brandy with his dinner. It took 13 months for his liver to collapse. And you know, when you go to that funeral home and you see your friend laying over in there, you know, just for the grace of God, it could be me. Why was I chosen on March 6th? It is a gift. It's my gift back to God is to keep it. Jim, I want to thank you and the committee for asking me and my wife up here, and it's something I'll never forget. And uh, and uh, God bless all of you. Thank you. Right on time. Ah, hold on, boy.